Welcome to the Ocean Hills Podcast. Our hope is that today's message would help you connect more deeply with God and with others. If you would like more information on what is happening in the Ocean Hills community, check out our website at oceanhills.org or download the Ocean Hills app. If you are encouraged by our ministry and would like to partner with us financially, you can give through your mobile device by texting Ocean Hills to 77977. We hope you enjoy this message. Launching a new series on the uniqueness of the church, unique expressions of the church, looking at the early church. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. We're going to be in this, these, what, five, six verses for the next seven or eight weeks. So we're just going to kind of land in this passage and cast some vision about the purpose of the church and uh, why we're here. And uh, what are some of the characteristics of a healthy church? So if you have a Bible, open it to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read these verses for us and then bring up our speaker. Beginning in verse 42, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. All the believers, all the believers devoted themselves. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. And all and all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I'm going to bring up Mike McKinnis. Many of you know Mike. He has taught here, spoken here many times. I thought he would be a great person to kick off 2024 for us. Mike is a great Bible teacher, a great voice, and uh, he works up at Westmont. And uh, let's just say a word of prayer real quick. Uh, Kind Father, I pray right now for Mike. Thanks that he said yes to begin 2024 by uh, bringing your word to our community. I pray that uh, right now that you would... uh, Fill him with your spirit and give him the courage and confidence to bring us the word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, John. Good morning, everybody, and happy new year. Um, Yeah, my name is Mike, and I'm one of you. Um, Everybody have good holidays? That was unanimous. That's great. Yeah, we had a good time. My family, we were traveling. We went back east, um, back to God's country uh, in New England, see my family, which was really important to do. It turned out to actually to be uh, both special and important. 
Um, so glad to have that opportunity and now, now to be back. Anybody resolution, a resolution person? All right, nobody. Um, that's good. Me neither. I figured I'd just save myself some time and jump ahead to the second week of January when it's all like uh, in the garbage anyway. And um, uh, no, a few years ago, I switched actually to thinking less about resolutions and thinking more about themes. And so I, I asked the Lord every year what, um, actually, I think John mentioned this uh, as an idea last week. Um, I go to themes. And so I asked the Lord, like, what's, what's something you want to say about this coming year? Maybe, actually, maybe Brian, that was you uh, who mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Um, and I love that idea. And I never know how that's going to play out over the course of the year. So it's a little bit of mystery and whatever. That has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about. Um, just there we are. So, um, yeah, so this one verse we're going to look at, uh, Acts 2.42, the beginning of this passage, um, there's four habits there of that early church that are mentioned. Uh, I'm going to get them out of order, but it's something, um, so they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, uh, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and to prayer, those four habits that they developed as an early church. We're just today, we're just going to look at that first one. Um, the new believers there um, on the day of Pentecost to hear this good news, uh, they devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles. So we'll look at what that means exactly. Uh, we'll do a little bit of background, and then uh, what, does that, what does that mean to us? What, what does it mean for us to devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles, and, and what, uh, what, what, what might we learn from that? There's a... Um, there's a New Testament scholar out there who's been hugely beneficial to me uh, personally, although I've never met him. I'd love to. I've got some questions for him. Um, but I've never had the, the pleasure of meeting him. Probably several of you will know the name. His name's N.T. Wright, or Tom Wright, I guess, if you're friends with him. I'm not, so I call him N.T., um, or at least not yet. Um, but uh, he once asked people to imagine a scenario, kind of a unique scenario, is a neat idea. He said, imagine um, that there's, a, there's somebody living, uh, they've got an old, really old home uh, in London, and they're, maybe they're doing some renovations or they're cleaning up the house a little bit, and they're down in their, their cellar, and they find there uh, this really old, I mean, just looks ancient, kind of crusty chest uh, down in the cellar. And they've never come across this before. Maybe there's too much junk around it on top of it, whatever. But they open it up and they find in this chest um, some really, really old papers. And there's a manuscript there. It's handwritten uh, in this glorious, uh, 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 glorious handwriting penmanship. Um, but it's, it's clearly very, very old. And so the, the papers are all super fragile and everything else. Um, they're really curious about it. And so they ship it off to the local university and some people take a look at it and they're, they're scanning through to see what they might have and who it might be connected to. And they start to realize over time that what they're looking at actually is actually an incredible find because what they think they have is a genuine, authentic manuscript from William Shakespeare, and it's a play that nobody's ever seen before. Totally, I mean, just previously completely unknown. Uh, it, it was never published, anything like that. It's brand new to the world. 
but it's also unfinished. Maybe it was something he was writing when he died, uh, and so he never, never, quite got, uh, never quite got around to finishing it. But they have a, a good chunk of it. There's act number, most of you, anybody a Shakespeare fan? Okay, one of you. Um, so, yeah, Shakespeare, you know, most of his plays are five acts. Um, so, uh, and, um, you know, tough to understand and all that, but I, I get it, that's fine. Um, you stick with Netflix, that's all right. Um, <laughs> what they have in this manuscript is acts, they've got act one, they've got act two, they've got act three, they've got act four, and they've got like the first, maybe the first scene of act five, like the critical juncture, the, the climax of the play. And then at the back, they just have some, you know, some notes, maybe some just offhand notes of where they think Shakespeare wanted to go to resolve the play. But there are several scenes he just never got around to writing in that last, in that last act. Well, this is a huge find. And they decide, uh, because plays aren't meant to be read, um, they're meant to be performed, they're meant to be seen, they're meant to be experienced. Uh, between an audience and 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 the actors, um, and so they decide they have to put it on, and so they send out a casting call and they invite all of the best Shakespearean actors from around the world, people who know Shakespeare forwards and backwards. They know uh, how he likes to develop uh, his dramas, how he likes to resolve things, how characters develop over the course of his plays, and so on and so forth. Uh, his turns of phrase, his his wordplay. Um, they invite the best Shakespearean actors to, to come to uh, put on this, this new and undiscovered, newly, newly discovered play. Um, and they give them a set of instructions. They say, you, it's your job to get on stage and perform Acts 1 through 4 the way it's written. Follow the manuscript uh, for what we actually have. But when we get to the Act 5, when we get to the resolution, this is up to you. You're ad-libbing this. So you're improvising that last act. We don't have it, but we trust you. You know Shakespeare, you know his character, you know how he likes to write, and so we're trusting you to perform this last, this last piece um, on your best, best understanding. Um, that's a huge opportunity for these actors, and you can imagine them just being electric with excitement about being able to perform this play they've never seen before, uh, and no one else has either. It's also an enormous, it feels to them like a weighty responsibility to have to improvise the, like the culminating scenes of this, of this drama. And there's a whole audience that gets to watch them do it and they've got the manuscript in front of them and they get to critique whatever, uh, whatever, whatever they're doing afterward. Uh, that's a huge responsibility and a, an enormous, uh, also special opportunity for them. The, um, this is gonna feel like a non sequitur. The Jews of uh, Jesus' day, uh, first century Jews, um, they knew the drama that they were in. They knew the story that they were a part of, uh, forwards and backwards. They knew by heart the drama of what we call the Old Testament. They knew that story, every single one of them knew it forwards and backwards. They knew it started all the way back with Abraham and God's call to him to bring him out of his homeland, move him into the land of Canaan uh, and promise him that, he was gonna, that God would make him into a great family, a whole nation uh, that would occupy that territory, that would occupy that land, uh, that it would be a gift from God. 
and that Abraham's, Abraham's people, his family would grow to become a nation and through that nation, all the world would be blessed. They know that that's where their story started. And they know then that that actually did happen to Abraham, at least a little bit at the very beginning where he has a son, his son has a son, his son has Jacob and Jacob has 12 sons and they eventually grow to become the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And they make their way down to Egypt because of a famine, but then they're in, they're in Egypt and they know that they get enslaved. Every Jew in Jesus' day knows that story. They're enslaved, they're there in captivity in Egypt for 450 years. And then they know that God raises up Moses to be a prophet and a leader to escort the people out of Egypt, to take them out of slavery into freedom, to become a new nation altogether. And that God miraculously takes them out of that land into the desert where they wander around for 40 years by their own uh, fault, um, whatever. Uh, but also that God delivers them his law, basically saying, this is how you be a people governed by me. Uh, and that they got that law, that was a gift from God for them. They know that story. They know that following Moses came Joshua and Joshua brings the people back into that promised land and they conquer the Canaanites there, most of them, and occupy that territory just as God had promised their father Abraham. They know that story forwards and backwards. And they know that for a time they're, they're governed by judges who did the best they could, God bless them. And then uh, the people demand a Saul because those judges didn't do such a great job, but they demand a king and that becomes Saul. And then Saul does kind of a bad job and then becomes David. And David's the best they ever had. And the pinnacle of kingship in Israel. And David's followed by Solomon and Solomon's followed by two sons who go separate ways. And so now you've got a separated kingdom. You've got two rival kingdoms, Israel on the one hand, Judah on the other hand. They know this story that these two kingdoms just clash against each other, but they're both God's people. That's weird. Uh, sounds like a lot of families I know. Um, but nevertheless, there they are. They know all this story forwards and backwards. And they know these two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, do everything they possibly can to not follow God and instead follow all the other gods around them, the ways of the people that surrounded them. Every Jew in Jesus' day would have known that story forwards and backwards. And they know that because of their actions, the Assyrians are an empire up to the, well, from your perspective, it's over here, here's Israel, up uh, to the northeast, um, they come, they conquer the nation of Israel and then following them come the Babylonians and the Babylonians come in and they wipe out Judah and destroy the temple and everything God had promised seems like it's totally gone and all the people are escorted into exile hundreds of miles away from their homeland. They know that story forwards and backwards. Every single Jew in Jesus' day knows that story. And then, yeah, the Persians come up and they say, yeah, some of you guys can go home. You can go back to your homeland. And a small troop of Israelites make their way back uh, into the promised land. And they kind of make a home there. They kind of make something like a, that looks like a temple, but it's kind of pathetic. Um, but they do their best. And then they know that the, after that point to where they are in Jesus' day, there's 500 years of total silence. They don't hear a word from God for 500 years. Every Jew in Jesus' day knows that story by heart. And they know it I think a lot of them know it and feel it like it's their own story, like they've lived the whole thing. The whole thing takes like 3,000 years, but they know it and feel it like it was their lifetime. That's the drama that they're in the middle of. That's Acts 1, 2, 3, and 4. And every Jew in Jesus' day knows, believes, expects that God's one day 
God's going to turn the page and he's going to start writing the next scene. And that next scene is going to be the most miraculous thing they've ever been a part of, the most amazing thing they've ever done. Um, it's the scene where God restores all of their fortunes and redeems all of their failures. But every Jew in Jesus' day also has a different idea on what that scene exactly is going to look like. Some of them expect that it's going to be, God's going to raise up some kind of military leader, somebody who's going to rally around him an army to, oh, I should have mentioned, uh, those Jews who came back to their homeland, yeah, they're home, but they're dominated by foreign powers. So they're not truly independent. They got the Persians first, and then they got the Greeks, and then they got the Egyptians again, and then it's the Romans. And so they're not really their own people, even though they're back in their own homeland. So some of them believe there's going to be a military leader that rises up. It's going to gather around him an army, and they're somehow by force going to push out the Romans and make a new kingdom for Israel. Some believe that's the way it's going to go. Others believe it's going to be some kind of political leader, somebody who's going to rise up and by their own charisma and cunning, they're going to somehow negotiate a way to make Israel its own place again, its own, um, its own um, nation with autonomy. Others think that maybe a religious leader is going to rise up and somehow cleanse the people, cleanse the temple of all of its corruption and return the people back just to at least worshiping God. Uh, well and doing that properly. Or maybe it's some combination of all of those that they're expecting. Um, but every Jew in Jesus' day knew that a new chapter had to be written. It was going to be written. But what it would look like, they all had different ideas. Not a single Jew in Jesus' day thought that that next new chapter, that new scene that God had to write, not a single Jew in Jesus' day thought that it would look like what we call the Gospels. None of them thought that the life of Jesus was going to be the way that God wrote that first scene, that, that climactic scene in Act 5. And so, <laughs> but that's, yeah, so that's the way uh, God does it. The, completely surprising, completely unexpected. And actually, I'm just stopping there because I feel like there's probably, there's probably several of us in this room who feel like we're in that spot, who feel like, we're in the spot where Israel was, where we have a history, we have a story, and it feels like where we are in that story is like being in 500 years of foreign oppression and years and years of silence without being able to hear what God's doing or saying, but you know or expect or hope deep in your heart that God is going to do something. He's good enough. He has to do something to change it. And maybe you've got ideas on what that's going to look like. Maybe you've got thoughts about like, well, if God just did this, then everything would be fabulous. Everything would be great. My whole life would be changed. And it's possible God might do that. I do think God's ready to move. God's ready to write a new, short, new, new scene in your life. 
it may look completely different from what you're expecting. But I also guarantee it's gonna look 100%, well, probably more than 100%, infinitely better than anything you could hope or imagine. It's just how good he is. Because that's what Jesus is. Infinitely better than anybody around him could have dreamed that their story would have turned out. Because Jesus was, well, aside from being a military leader, I suppose, he's, he's all of the things they hoped for just done completely differently. They didn't expect this. They didn't expect somebody to go all the way that would actually be, that what they needed was somebody to go to the cross for them. That what they needed was somebody to pour out their entire lives for them. That what they needed was someone to live their entire lives completely aligned to the creator. Listening to every word he spoke and doing nothing but what he spoke all the way to the end. And then the proof in the pudding, they, what, they, what absolutely nobody expected was that he would be raised from the dead. Um, uh, which is the way I like to think about it. That's like God's stamp of approval on like, this is how you know Jesus did it right because I raised him. Because death couldn't hold him. That's how you know this is the model we were looking for. So. That gets us right up to, well, just about to Acts 2. Um, so Jesus is raised from the dead. And then the disciples, oh, here, the disciples, they didn't expect this either. The very people who spent three years walking around with Jesus, walking with him, eating with him, sleeping uh, alongside him, and um, hearing everything he taught, watching him heal and feed and, uh, and, and cast out demons and everything else, uh, none of them even expected Jesus to do what he did in the end. They're all completely surprised. The reason you know is because none of them are around when he dies. They all scatter. But now they actually get to witness his resurrection. Well, they're not there exactly when he's raised, but a little bit afterward, but they get to see him. They meet with him. They talk with him. They eat with him. They touch him. And they know they can't deny that Jesus is there in their midst more real than he's ever been. My grandmother, one of the reasons our uh, trip back east was so special, my grandmother um, actually passed away a, just over a week ago. Um, we got to see her uh, the day, day after we landed. Kate and I went to see her. Uh, she was in hospice care. Uh, so I knew, we knew this was the last time we were going to see her. Uh, she had a little bit of a dementia. She was suffering from COPD. So we, I mean, it was, it was, it was, uh, we knew it was her time. Um, uh, dementia patients. So one of the things in her last year, she resorted to certain phrases um, that, you know, would kind of like wrap up conversations. Um, kind of a handy tool, actually. Um, uh, her favorite... Uh, in, in her last days, her favorite phrase well, was, well, it is what it is, so you just got to deal with it. <laughs> and so anything, you could be having a conversation and, you know, you mention some salacious thing or another, and she says, well, it is what it is, you just have to deal with it. And that meant, like, we're moving on to the next, next topic. <laughs> um, the disciples, they, uh, they're there seeing talking with, living with the resurrected Jesus, something they never expected. It is what it is. And now they had to deal with it. 
that's the kind of thing I would like to have to deal with. Um, if, if there is such, if you could call that a problem, that's the kind of problem I'd like to have to deal with. Um, but there they are, they have to now deal with this new reality. And so I imagine that for several weeks now, after Jesus is raised, after they get to meet him and talk with him and eat with him, and he's then ascended back to heaven, and now they're by themselves. And for several weeks, they're together, thinking hard about everything they just experienced thinking hard about this long four acts that they knew deep in their bones. This was their story. And here's this new scene that's just been written. It wasn't at all what they expected. And I think they spent a lot of time thinking about what in the world did this, what in the world just happened? And what does it mean? I think they spent a lot of time talking with each other, hashing out, did this really happen? What does it mean that we were there with 5,000 people and we went to feed them and we just kept coming up with more bread. We kept coming up with more fish. Why did that happen? What did that mean? You know, all these expectations I had about what God was gonna do next, this looked nothing like it. Does this fit what our story is? I think they spend a lot of time talking about that. I think they spend a lot of time uh, in conversation back and forth, wrestling with these ideas. Um, and I don't, there's a, there's a word for, I think, what they're going through. Um, sometimes we call it a paradigm shift. I don't know if anybody's ever experienced that in their own lives. Maybe you learn something brand new about, um, oh, I don't know, maybe you learn something brand new about like your family history, something you, you'd never grappled with, never even considered. But like this piece of news comes out, maybe it's on somebody's deathbed and like, it's like, oh, by the way, you know, this happened, you know, way back when. And it like totally turns, you feel like you're turned totally upside down. You don't even know what's true anymore. And do I even know you? Whatever, I, I don't know, I'm getting pretty dramatic. But nevertheless, like some new piece of information comes in and it feels like it just shatters everything you thought you knew. I've been through that experience, not necessarily with family life, but I've been through that experience like with uh, something I thought I knew really well and then a new, some new pieces of information come in and it's like, well, I, don't, I didn't, that, I did not, whoa, I don't know any of this anymore. I'm completely stupid about this thing I thought I was pretty good at. Um, it feels, the way I like to think about it, it feels like floating in midair. And you don't know where the ground is, you don't know where the sky is, you don't know where anything lives anymore. But then you spend some time kind of putting the pieces back together and starting to like think it through and like reorient everything according to what you just learned. And then all of a sudden you start to realize like, oh, this makes better sense of everything I thought I knew already. But I just had to reorganize it, I had to rearrange it for a little bit. A lot of people have said uh, that Jesus, the reality of Jesus and what he does and what he says and who he is turns everything upside down. I think that's completely wrong. I think what Jesus does is actually turn everything right side up. And I think several of us have had that experience when we've come to know Jesus for the first time. Maybe if, we've come, if we came to know Jesus later in life, we had more experience doing it the wrong way. And then we come around and we, we realize who Jesus is. We learn who that is. Um, 
I think sometimes we have a more dramatic experience of that, of realizing that I was living upside down the whole, this whole time. And then Jesus reorients us, puts our feet actually on the ground rather than uh, the other way around. So Jesus makes, the disciples spend several weeks talking and praying and thinking hard about this, this whole thing. And they start to realize Jesus makes better sense of these four acts that have come before than anything they otherwise could have anticipated or expected or drawn up on their own. And then this is where we get to Acts chapter two, because then, you know, they're all in this room together. This is 50 days after uh, uh, the resurrection, 50 days after the, after the Passover comes the Pentecost, and then uh, the Holy Spirit comes into their room and descends on them. You, you guys know this story? You remember this story? Uh, you can read back in Acts chapter two and you'll see this. They, um, the Holy Spirit descends on all of them and they suddenly burst out of this room into the open streets and there's hundreds, maybe thousands of Jews who have come from all over the Roman world to celebrate this festival. And the 12 disciples come out and they start telling anybody and everybody who will listen this new scene that has just occurred. And in the process, they start to reinterpret their four acts of history that all of them know by heart. And they come out explaining a new story. And they're telling everybody that here's, I mean, ultimately here's the good news, that God has written that chapter, that scene that we've all been anticipating that he would. He's restoring all of our fortunes, but it looks different than we expected. He's redeeming all of our past failures, but it looked different than we expected. And every promise that they knew by heart from their vast history, every uh, prophecy that they knew by heart from their vast history, right there in front of them in what Jesus did. And that's what the disciples are doing. And so several people believe it. They say, yes, actually that does. Immediately they say that makes better sense of everything we thought we knew. But here's the thing. I'm gonna go back to these Shakespearean actors who were charged with putting on, improvising this play uh, in front of an audience. Take a lead actor in that play and they start to act out scenes in the unwritten act, they can't be the same character in that final act that they were in the first scene. Because over the course of the drama, things change. Circumstances happen, incidences uh, occur that change that character, that transform it. You all have seen bad movies before where the character doesn't change at all and they're just kind of like this flat wooden figure that goes through the course of action, that's no fun, that's boring. But a character who changes because things happen to them, who realizes something or learns something or has to uh, adjust over time because of things that happen over the course of the, the movie, over the course of a book, over the course of a play, whatever it is, that's more realistic, that's who we are. And so you can't be the same person in act, act five that you were in act one or act two or act three or even act four because something dramatic has happened to change everything. And that 
lead actor's counterpart, she has to respond in new ways because things have changed, because there's been a decisive moment that's happened just now and they have to react differently. So the resurrected Jesus means you can't do things the way you did previously. You can't live in the same way uh, that they had been before. And that's ultimately why they have to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Because they can't live the same way they have been the day before. Everything's totally different. If Jesus is raised, then the story has changed. And that has to be done. I have to improvise this part differently. They need the apostles to tell them, yeah, we walked with Jesus, we talked with Jesus, we met with him, we can tell you all the things we did and all the things he did, and we can tell you how it fits the story. And we can help you reorient and reorganize the things you thought you knew and put yourself on more solid footing so that you can play out your part more accurately. You can play out your part more in line with the God of heaven. And the good news for us, we're all actors. We're part of the same drama. And we're all in the middle of act five. I don't know how long the act goes. It's been going on for 2000 years already. I don't know how much farther it goes but we're all actors in that drama. And this, I don't know if you, you wanna take it as exciting or terrifying, but we're all improvising. Even the type A's, you're improvising too. You're making it up as you go. It's okay. It's how we all have to do it. Just some of us are deluding ourselves, it's okay. <laughs> But we're all actors on this stage. And we're all playing out our own scenes in that great drama. We're all part of the same, same play. And we need, this is one of the reasons, you know, like people say you gotta read your Bible. One of the reasons you read your Bible is because you have to know the story you're a part of. It's very easy to act out scenes in a story that doesn't fit this one. There's a lot of stories out there and a lot of stories to be a part of. And a lot of voices telling us what might be the good way to live, what might be the right way to live, what might be the right way to improvise your story. I can think of a few. Collect as much stuff as you possibly can as long as you're living. Get as much as you can. Now the problem is, if you're living by this story, that's completely inconsistent with a, with a Jesus who gave everything he had. Right down to the last drop of blood. Collect as much power and authority and influence as you possibly can. That's a good way to live. Except that's inconsistent with a resurrected Jesus who came to serve and not be served. Vote the way I tell you to vote because my party, let me tell you, will make everything good for all people 
Um, if we haven't figured out that that one's garbage, um, no matter which side you're on, um, well, you need to spend a little bit more time here. Um, inconsistent with the God of the universe who raises Jesus from the dead, not through political might, but by th through his own power. It's one of the reasons we need this. And it's one of the reasons we need good teachers. We need people like John. We need people like John o and the rest of the staff here because it's so easy to forget how we're supposed to act out our scene, how we're supposed to walk with Jesus day to day, hour by hour, in all the different extremely difficult contexts that we're all placed in, in our families, in our workplaces, in this community. We need reminding. Just like these fictitious actors who get the incredible opportunity to perform a new play and improvise these scenes in the finale of something nobody's ever seen before, that's the incredible, exciting opportunity that we all have to live lives that are consistent with this story and point to where this story says we're going. It's also an enormously terrifying responsibility. And so we need help. And that's why we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. If, let me ask you this, if you want to take on that responsibility, improvising your part, ad-libbing your part that shows the rest of the world. This is what this looks like. I want to ask you to stand with me. I'm just going to pray for us all. Why don't you put your hand on your heart? And we say first and foremost, Lord, <clears throat> God, thanks doesn't feel like enough for turning everything right side up. But thank you. Thank you for doing that with the world, turning the world right side up. And thank you for doing it in my heart. And Lord, for my part to play, for the scene that's in front of me, Lord, I ask your help. Remind me through your word, remind me through your teachers and servants, remind me through this family that <clears throat> we call Ocean Hills and anyone else that's a part of your family. Remind me how to do it well. 
Remind me how to do it in a way that points to your goodness, that points to your faithfulness, that points to your love. And give us courage to walk it out well. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the ways that we remind ourselves of who we are and what we're a part of is here in front of us. This is the Lord's Supper. This is communion. This is our opportunity to remind ourselves that who we serve, the God that we call ours, is a God that welcomes us into a meal, a God that wants to sit with us and share life with us. And so as the band uh, plays, we can come up and a um, couple instructions. We're gonna come down the aisles. We're getting used to this now. We're coming down the center aisles and then moving out to the outside. Uh, we're also gonna watch our step when we get up here to the front. The uh, spill rug's a little bit bumpy today. That's okay. Uh, just be careful. Um, but up front here, there's bread. The bread represents Christ's body, body which is broken on your behalf. Take one, tear a piece off, you dip it in the cup, that's Christ's blood. That is God's commitment that I'm with you to the very end. And then you could take and eat it. There's gluten-free options on the edge because that's where we are these days. And you're blessed even if you're celiac or gluten-free, that's just fine. But it's there for you. Uh, and there will be prayer teams in the corners. If you, um, if you need to spend some time talking with the Lord and you need some help in doing it, that's what they're there for. If you need healing, if you need encouragement, if you uh, just need someone to lift you up, that's what they're there for. So come, take and eat with the resurrected Christ. When, come when you're ready, take a piece off, dip it, and enjoy. Enjoy.